0: You've heard the expression, "If you don't like the weather, wait for it to change." Um, that's not really true here in Central Florida. Only changes four times—well, changes twice a year. But um, you know, uh, it actually seems more true. And I'm to, to to adapt the expression: If you're not angry right now, just wait, because you will be soon on television, on the radio, in the grocery store, on Twitter feeds, everywhere people are angry. And even if you're not angry some of the time, you know that a lot of people are. Senator Ben Sass, the only sitting senator who has a degree from a, theolo- a Reformed theological seminary, uh, Westminster Seminary, California, but also a Ph.D. in intellectual history, he's written a book entitled, them, why we hate each other, and how to heal. And he cites a number of medical and psychological studies that point to the reason people are so angry with each other. And while he is a sitting U.S. senator who deals with the issues constantly, the the massive social and economic issues that are before us, he doesn't dismiss those, but he says the the root of the anger is much deeper, according to these studies, and it is surprising when you find out what he says. It's loneliness. We don't have neighbors anymore. Citing one researcher's report, he says it's entirely possible to be socially isolated even while surrounded by millions of people. Now get this, this book was published two years ago. So the quarantine has just accelerated these dynamics exponentially. I picked up the paper this morning and what was on the front page, the big article of the front page is an article about loneliness in the midst of quarantine. It's hardly better among Christians than it is in the general population, according to my observations, this anger epidemic. In fact, people with religious convictions are often blamed as the source of the anger. We do well to listen to what Jesus said in perhaps the best-known parable that he ever told, because it's on the subject of neighbors. Neighbors who are the cure to loneliness and therefore the cure to the strife, at least a major source of it. Here's what I want us to see from this text this morning. The justified, that is, those who are right with God, are those upon whom God has been merciful. And since the justified are those upon whom God has been merciful, those who are justified must be merciful. To others. Pretty simple. Or even to put it more simply, the justified are the merciful. Let's see how Jesus lays this out in the story of the Good Samaritan. First of all, the request. The request. Uh, When we see the lawyer approach Jesus, we see a request. And his problem is he makes man the measure of being right before God. And because that is true, not only of him, but of us, that we make man the measure, we have to recognize that impulse and its consequences. The lawyer, he's called a lawyer here. It's a subcategory of scribe. If you read the all four Gospels together, you can see the lawyers uh, are, are, are those recognized within the scribal community who are experts at interpreting and applying the law of Moses particularly to help out in situations between people. And it's one of many scenes where Jesus is dealing with authorities. Uh, Often uh, it's when eating with tax collectors and sinners that authorities approach him. Other times it's uh, healing people on the Sabbath, the authorities approach him. He seems to be a magnet for attracting authorities who want to know why he's doing certain things. And this is actually a Jewish leader who now wants to know about inheriting eternal life. But we know from his uh, stated motive here by Luke that he is intending to put Jesus to the test. This is not a sincere question, at least not entirely sincere. And he's doing it in front of a crowd apparently because it says he stood up. So that suggests that there is a group of people, and he stands up. Now, he's showing respect by standing before asking, and he calls him teacher, but his motive has been disclosed, hasn't it? What is the request? Well, how shall I inherit eternal life? Now, when we see the phrase eternal life, we think of if you sign this card, you'll get to go to heaven when you die. But that's, there's more going on whenever you see eternal life In the Gospels, it's more than just getting to go to heaven when you die. It's the life that is the divine impartation of life to God's people. In other words, it's sharing in all that is God's and he gives to his people. In fact, when John uses the word life in his Gospel, it's actually almost a synonym for the idea of the kingdom of God. In so many words, the lawyer is asking, how can I share in the kingdom of God, the blessings of God? And um, interestingly, he uses the word inherit. Uh, inherit is something uh, that reflects a right by virtue of one's association with someone else or others. Uh, the the lawyer was part of the nation of Israel, the people of God. And he says, by what means can I Share in what is mine by divine promise. So this isn't a question about what do I do to get into heaven and how much self-righteous, meritorious works must I do in order to earn my way into heaven. This is how do I share in the promises of God that had been promised to his people? Jesus responds with a question. Didn't you hate those those teachers in uh, junior high and high school who never answered your question but just... What's going to be on the test? What do you think is going to be on the test? What should be on the test? Well, Jesus responds to the request. Similarly, he says, uh, what is written in the law? What's in the book? What's in the law of Moses? But he doesn't just stop there, because to recite a memory verse does not answer the question. He goes on to say, and how do you read it? It is, how do you interpret it? Not only... Can you cite chapter and verse, but do you understand what it means? And the lawyer, because he is knowledgeable in the law of God, he responds rightly. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now notice, he doesn't repeat the verb love here. So Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Uh, Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it was understood it was Moses' intention that it was to reflect God's will that to love God and to love neighbor were the two great commands. And other places in the gospel, we see uh, Jesus responding similarly. There is a, a a rich man who later in Luke's gospel and asked the same question. But notice here the scribe he doesn't repeat the verb he lets one verb rule the whole sentence. In other words, he's reflecting a right understanding that it is one thing to love God and neighbor. If I held up a... I just happened to find a quarter in my pocket this morning. I didn't know I had any cash until I got these pants out of the closet. But if I hold up a coin... Children, this is called hard cash money. You've never seen it before. But if I hold up a coin, it has how many sides? It has... Two sides, but it is one coin, right? And to love God and love neighbor are just two sides of the same coin. And it's grounded in the fact that people are in the image of God, right? That to love the Lord means to love his image. But Israel, unlike the nations, didn't have gold and silver and stone and wood idols in their sanctuary. They had images of their God sitting beside them in church. And so to love God, in other words, Worship of Israel's God is not complete until love for neighbor is expressed as a manifestation of love for God. So he gets that right. And Jesus responds, Do this and you will live. A quote from Leviticus 18, verse 5. Now, this isn't about jumping high enough to merit salvation. This isn't Jesus teasing someone to see if they'll just try to justify themselves by their own works so that they'll end up in the end failing and turn to God for mercy, although that is a true thing. Galatians 3 talks about the law being our tutor, our, our, um, our disciplinarian to drive us to Christ. That is a true thing. Yet that's not what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes when the Gospels tell us things like seek first the kingdom of God, it really does mean seek first the kingdom of God. It's not God just teasing us to make us try so that we'll fail and fall on our faces. So he says, do this and you will live. He's quoting the same law that the scribe knew. But now, what does the lawyer do? He says, yes, But, and I used to work in business, and I've been sued by lawyers, not personally, but, well, actually one time. But um, I know a little bit, I I know more about law than I wish I knew. And this is what you call lawyering up in a certain sense. It says, verse 29, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now the word justify is a legal word here. Uh, We think of justification by grace alone through faith alone. That God legally reckons Christ's righteousness to us, and He legally reckoned our sin on Christ, we call double imputation, so that we stand legally justified before God. But that's not all the word always means. Here, in this context, it is, um, how do I vindicate myself and He's already mentioned inheritance. How, how do I prove myself a true Jew? That's the essence of what the lawyer is asking. And Jesus' response uh, follows with the parable. So the request is, how can I prove myself a truly right person before God? And Jesus says, love your neighbor and love God. And the lawyer responds by asking, who is my neighbor. Draw me a circle around what I have to do. Now, this is very important for us to understand because it is often related to a misunderstanding of the Gospels. We think of the Pharisees, and the scribes, the religious leaders. They set the bar so high that nobody can realistically jump that bar. That's actually not what Pharisaism is. Pharisaism was setting the bar too narrow. Think of the classic example uh, that Jesus relates uh, in Matthew's Gospel uh, of the man whose parents were destitute, but he said, I can't, and, and he had the resources to help them, but he says, I can't help you because I promised this money to the offering plate. Or think of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, and uh, the religious leaders taking exception with that. Uh, And Jesus explains to them that this is the purpose of the Sabbath, to bring restoration and healing. Jesus wasn't just giving a loophole for Sabbath actions, but he was showing the true purpose of Sabbath actions. They, in their religious devotion, were narrowing the scope of the law rather than seeing it in its full scope. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this in his book, um, The Cost of Discipleship. In the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Bonhoeffer points out there that that there is nothing in the Sermon on the Mount you can do by yourself. Everything that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is social. That is, it has to do with how you relate to others. There was an intellectual movement called the Enlightenment that began in the 16th century, and it provided many great benefits, including science and the use of reason. But one of the disastrous effects of the Enlightenment was people came to see the social unit as the individual. And it affected the Protestant faith, particularly because we focus so much on our individual legal standing before God that we ignore the social implications of the gospel. There was a movement about 120 years ago called the Social Gospel Movement. It was intended to try to relieve the suffering that industrialization was causing and help elevate workers and, uh, and, and increase workplace safety and reach out to the destitute. And there were many, many implications of this. But the Social Gospel Movement walked away from justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone. And so you had this division among Protestants of those who were preaching souls into heaven and those who were trying to improve conditions on earth. And you know, when people separate, they're usually worse off than they were if they had stayed together. And so the evangelical tradition became known as those who wanted to preach people into heaven, but often ignore people's earthly needs. It's true that the social gospel was unbiblical, but the biblical gospel is inherently social. And that's what we often forget, especially in our well-refined, reformed theological tradition. I speak as one of those people. So we have to recognize that the question of are we right before God inherently involves how we treat others. And we tend to live in order to justify ourselves before people, but when we do that, we fail to love others the way God intended us to love, him, love them. So that's the request. We often make man the measure of being right, and we have to recognize that in us. Secondly here, notice the reply. Now, if you've ever been a an adolescent and you went to your parents, probably your dad, to ask for some money, and Your dad started telling a story. You say, okay, what's what's going to be the cost? How much am I going to get for listening to this story? Or do I just withdraw the request? But we don't know what the lawyer's response was, but Jesus gives him a story. And he tells the story of the prodigal son. As I said earlier, probably the most famous parable in all the Bible. And... Let's first of all consider the participants. There's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now that sounds like a bar joke, doesn't it? A priest, a rabbi, and a minister walk into a bar, and the bartender says, What is this, a joke? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, That typical joke involves three clergymen about whom there are common but different expectations. Now, that's not our trio here. There's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. A priest is somebody who was a descendant of Aaron whose main job was service of God in the temple. He might not have lived in Jerusalem, but when his rotation came up, he would go to Jerusalem for that service. And it was the high priest on the Day of Atonement that stood in the Holy of Holies. So it's religious vocation. The Levite is a descendant of Levi, the whole tribe of Levi, and the whole Levitical tribe was called into divine service. They were the ones that administered the sacrifices, that carried all the the offerings. And besides their ministry in the temple, they would carry out Levitical ministry in remote places away from Jerusalem by deciding judicial cases, also receiving lesser offerings, and uh, being... uh, civil as well as religious authorities. And um, the third is a Samaritan. Now, it's interesting uh, that verse 33 in the Greek just begins, Samaritan. There's no but in front of it in the Greek. The but follows the Samaritan, and it it, it reinforces the idea that this is a shocking development. Why? Who were Samaritans? Well, Samaritans were half-breeds at best. The northern kingdom of Israel separated from the southern kingdom and a false worship center was set up on Mount Gerizim. You read about that in the Samaritan woman story in John chapter 4. But after that, uh, when uh, the northern tribes were taken off into captivity, the Assyrians who conquered them brought in waves of immigrants, shall we say. And then when Alexander the Great washed through uh, northern Israel... He brought captives from other places. And so you have this false worship, uh, even though they claimed to be descendants of Jacob. They weren't. They were, as I said, half-breeds at best. And there was a history of violence between Jews in the south and Samaritans in the north. This is why the Samaritan woman is so shocked when Jesus approaches her by the well at Sychar. And shockingly... The priest and the Levite, who are in religious vocations, not only do they pass by the beaten man, but they cross the street. Why did they do that? Well, let's look at the plot. You have the, the participants, now the plot. They couldn't be late for work, presumably. But more than that, uh, they couldn't take a day off. And Why do I say that? Well, to stop and aid this beaten man would have undoubtedly rendered them unclean for religious duty. Remember what I said before about the religious leaders narrowing the scope of the law instead of raising the bar? They can't help this beaten man because they have to go and lead worship, to put it simply. Now, the beaten man, we know nothing of his status. Perhaps the Levite and the priest, when they walked by, they said, you know, God is just, and if he's been beaten and thrown in a ditch naked and and broke, maybe he deserved it. We don't know how long he was there. Was he there hours? Was Was he there a day? Was he there, shall I even ask, eight minutes and 46 seconds? We don't know. But the Samaritan. The man who was unclean from birth, who had no hope of ever walking into the temple in Jerusalem, who even risked violence by approaching Jewish territory. He acts, and he acts far beyond rendering immediate aid. He just doesn't kneel, you know, our good Samaritan laws that we have in some states in the US. Uh, you have to help if you can, but when the professionals arrive, you can leave the scene. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even just go get help. Look at his actions. First of all, he had compassion, or as the NIV says, he had pity. When he looked in the ditch, he saw the image of the Creator and his actions which follow show that he had learned more from what he saw in the ditch about God than what the Levite and the priest saw in the temple and in the Scriptures. Where he came by this knowledge, we don't know. Could it even been the defective theology of Samaritan cult? We don't know. But when he looked upon that man, he saw an image of the Creator. Not even a Jew was an enemy, but an image of God. And so... He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, took care of him. He gave the innkeeper money, two days' wages, and said, I will pay you anything more it costs when I come back. He even promised to come back. The elaborate, extended, what how many verbs did I count? Eight? Eight actions meticulously cataloged by Jesus, and the telling of this shows that this was a deep, intense, thoughtful, sincere, and a full fulfillment of what he had said to the lawyer. Now, this is not a historical incident as far as we know. but it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't hope that it might be one. That he didn't hope, and surely he did intend for this lawyer to hear and turn from being a man who's self-justified by having the respect of others, by belonging to his tribe, by being tribal among his own, that he might instead follow the example of this terrible Samaritan. This is not just about the racial issues that are boiling over, but obviously it includes those. I only say that because I don't want you to think that I'm special pleading or doing anything more than pondering the own the, the, the things that God has been putting upon my heart and before my eyes in recent months. Some of you have probably seen the news. There was a college student who was a leader of a conservative political group of students on his campus, and... He tweeted out something a couple of days ago about George Floyd. And I, I can't even tell you what it was. It wasn't profane, but it was decadent. What was the worst thing about that? As I, 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 some of you may have seen this. I, what was the worst thing? Was the worst thing what he said? I don't think so. Was the worst thing the death threats that had been made against him? I don't think so. Was the worst thing the fact that his university is investigating, considering kicking him out for perhaps what was an impulsive moment of action? I don't think that's the worst thing. Was the worst thing that he is a leader of a politically conservative group, bringing discredit on conservative politics? I don't think so. In my view, the worst thing about this whole thing was that his Twitter profile included the label Christian. What he did, he did in the name of Jesus. Now, thankfully, if he's a Christian, there's a wideness in God's mercy. For without it, it is a terrible thing, isn't it, to fall into the hands of a living God. But you see, Israel had a mission, and I'm sure you've heard this many times. Israel had a mission. Keep God's commands and the nations will come to God's mountain. Be a light to the world, and people will see the glory of God and join Israel in worshiping their God. And that's why the Old Testament prophets are so adamant about the justice of God. Because the justice of God fulfills the mission of God, but when the people of God not only mistreat the foreigner and the alien within their gates, and they prey upon one another, the poor and the servant in their houses. What they do is they bring credit and shame instead of honor upon God. The church has a mission. And it's to be a light to the nations. And it is a light to the nations not simply by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, but it is a light to the nations by showing the world an alternative way of living. A different king whose reign is righteous, who is generous and merciful and abundant in his blessing of his children. The, the world needs the church desperately, especially during the most desperate times. Remember what Cain asked God and God asked him, where is your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? You know, and people quote that all the time saying, I don't know. It's not my job. But you realize the irony of that, right? In Genesis 4, Cain knows exactly where his brother is. And he may not have even finish washing the blood from his hands. Did he sneak up upon Abel and do the dirty deed? What is it? Was it impulsive in the midst of a jealous argument over their offerings? We don't know, but Cain was his brother's keeper and he became his brother's killer. The church has been on the wrong side of this so often that we need to recognize in the reply of Jesus that one of our jobs, in fact, job one is for us as followers of Christ to show mercy to those in need. The request and the reply. Are we done yet? Have you ever walked out of a movie too soon? Three years after I watched Napoleon Dynamite, I learned that Lafonda and Kip got married. From then on, I stayed through all the closing credits. There's a finish to this story, it's not just a parable. Jesus turned to the lawyer in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is the recognition. Who proved to be a neighbor? Remember, that was the lawyer's question. Who is my neighbor? And our surface reading the parable, we say, oh, the beaten man, he's the neighbor. No, that's not the answer Jesus gave. The answer Jesus gave to the lawyer was, the Samaritans, your neighbor. Scandalous, shocking, going against all of the lawyer's tribal sense. The Samaritans, my neighbor? If I were to add a verse put in Jesus' mouth, I would have said, you better hope so, lawyer, because he's more of a Jew than you who cares so much about what your fellow Jews care about. This shouldn't surprise us, by the way. Luke's gospel is full of turning things upside down. Mary's song. The rich he will send away empty, and the hungry he will fill with good things. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones, and he will lift up, exalt the humble. Jesus' parents were told in the temple, this child this child will be the cause of the rise and fall of many in Israel you do not want to be on the wrong end of this i don't want to be on the wrong end of this when we have to give an account and we should desperately try in the present moment not to be on the wrong end you know what trash talking is in a basketball game or football game or any other kind of sport you know what trash talking is Trash-talking is actually a very strategic strategy. That's redundant, but it is. Because if you can get that other player to lose his cool, especially if he is the highest scoring, highest rebounding, captain of the team, you put 20 points on the scoreboard for your own team or taking 20 off the other team. I learned something about um, um, retired New York Yankees... um, Shortstop. Derek Jeter. He has many records, but in 2,000-some games, he was never thrown out of a game. Isn't that amazing? What's the Baltimore Orioles? uh, Cal Ripken. It took him like, you know, 18 years to finally get thrown out, and there are others who made it a lot. But Derek Jeter never got thrown out of the game. Look, here's here's my appeal this morning and figure out figure out how you can act on this in your own sphere, your own orbit. How can we not be kicked out of the game in these great conversations about what is just and right in the world? And it's from the macro down to the down to the micro. Is there somebody who lives next to you that's not been there's not been a car in their driveway for all this whole quarantine? Is there somebody in your own congregation you haven't seen and you just know that they're lonely? And it's not just throwing out the verbal grenades that we tend to identify as evangelism, it's doing the deeds of Jesus. Because James says this is true religion. This is true religion to show kindness to the widow and the stranger and the orphan. Not to justify ourselves, but to make God shine. The request, the reply, the recognition. Just a little story to maybe illustrate this in my wife's life. When we lived in Detroit, well, we lived in suburban Detroit. We lived in the whitest suburb over 100,000 in the whole country. One suburb removed from the blackest city in the country. And my wife got called for jury duty down in downtown Detroit, Wayne County. And uh, she left on a Monday morning. I said, honey, whatever you do, she's a school teacher. Some of you know her. She's a school teacher. Whatever you do, don't get yourself made foreman of that jury. Well, she came home very excited. She's very civic-minded. She was very excited. I said, first of all, before you tell me about the trial did you get named foreman? She says, no, nobody said anything. I almost volunteered, but I remember what you said. And I waited until somebody else got picked. I said, okay, tell me about the trial. Well, a member of the Bloods had murdered a child who was not a gang member in one of the Detroit neighborhood, uh, neighborhoods of Detroit. And And it was this way every day of the trial, which lasted at least a full week. Every day, a group of young people would come in wearing their colors. And every day, a young 16-year-old girl with her parents sat shaking on the front row. She was the only eyewitness. The second day of the trial, my wife came home and said, I got some news. I said, what? She goes, I'm the foreman. I said, what happened? She said, well, the guy who got foreman yesterday, he didn't show up. The judge signed out a bench warrant, uh, sent the court deputies to arrest him and throw him in jail, and so, you know, they picked me. (laughs) So my wife is the jury foreman for a Crips murder trial, and uh, the trial is being populated by a large number of the gang members. Well, um, during the course of the week, there were, you know, it was a mixed jury. There were a couple of white men. They were pretty loud mouthed about cops being dirty and about the people in this neighborhood getting what they deserve. No one wants to speak up. They can't expect, you know, and they were pretty mouthy that way. And I don't remember who else she told me. There's one very dignified black gentleman, measured in his tone, reasonable. In the end, it was on a Friday afternoon, and you know, in the in, in in the upper Midwest, it gets dark early. In fact, it never gets light during the winter. It seems gray, snowy. They they were able to agree on a conviction of a lesser charge, and uh, my wife walked to the courthouse door, and she looked across the street in the dimness and the and the and the spritz of the rain coming down. And her car was parked in that garage. And she asked, is there somebody supposed to walk over there with us? They said no. So she thought about her walk, a very long walk, short geographically long, in terms of her anxiety. And this black man who'd been on the jury stepped up beside her. He said, you're walking with me. Now <clears throat> she had no ill opinion of this man, but it's clear some who had been on the jury did. But you see, he was the true Jew that day. And we need to we need to be in the game as Christians, as followers of Christ. To lead the way, as complicated and as messy as it all is, as many wrong people as there are out there, and wrong solutions and wrong methodologies, the world needs us on our game. Both within our little fellowship here, but also in every place we sit, in our offices and in our neighborhoods and in our schools. May God give us the grace. Will you pray with me?